This week, it was awesome to dive deep into startups with Sahil Lavinia, founder and CEO of Gumroad. Sahil's seen it all in Silicon Valley. He was employee number two at Pinterest, started Gumroad with a traditional venture-backed structure, pivoted the business to be venture-free, and now has a rolling fund he operates in his spare time, investing $7 million a year in startups. We talked a lot about the differences in running a venture-backed company versus a company that lives and breathes off the balance sheet. We also chatted about the difference in psychology of running these types of businesses and how clarity of thought comes through when you get outside of the echo chamber. Sahos worked to remove friction and increase democratization in nearly everything he's done. And a lot of this principle is what underscores Gumroad. He's taken the same perspective to investing. Some of my favorite insights from this conversation included, one, how to leverage community and audience, two, why everyone should invest in early stage companies, three, the trope of the world's venture capital being perfectly allocated, and four, how democratization and access will continue to lift humanity out of its early J-curve. Welcome, Sahil. It's a pleasure to have you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Sahil, excited to have you on the show today, you know, dive into Gumroad, rolling funds, and and a couple other topics. Let's just kick off by giving our listeners a, a bit more perspective on your background. Yeah, so I started in Silicon Valley in 2010. I was the second employee at Pinterest where I designed and built Pinterest for iPhone, among a few other things. And then I started Gumroad as a weekend project while I was working at Pinterest, took it full-time, raised um, some money from Silicon Valley folks, uh, tried to make that a unicorn, failed 2015 uh, to raise our Series B, uh, did, a, did a big round of layoffs, got to profitable 2016, went remote and all of that stuff as well, and then left uh, the Bay Area, just felt like didn't really need to be there anymore, moved to Provo, Utah, was writing science fiction and fantasy, and 2019, I wrote a post, Gumroad, you know, kind of continued to go up and to the right, just not at the sort of venture scale, so I wrote a post about it in 2019 called Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company, which did did well, a lot of people, I think, like the the transparency there, and, and uh, that kicked off, like, my Twitter audience, and now I have a, a Twitter account, that, and now I have that has sort of, I think a confluence of a few factors, including including those two things have led to me having this new venture fund on AngelList um, that's around right now around seven, uh, seven or so million dollars a year. And so let's, we'll, we'll unpack a bunch of those different things. Let's, let's start with Pinterest first. You know, you left Pinterest as, I think it was employee number two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm always curious, especially when talking to founders of, you know, high growth companies or folks that have been a part of high growth companies, Looking, I'm sure that looking back on that experience, there's there's some things that you probably took for granted, but you know now you know with the benefit of hindsight, you see comparatively across companies that probably truly was unique to Pinterest or special to Pinterest. Just talk a little bit more about you know your Pinterest uh, experience. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think I did take the fact that I was working at a you know a billion dollar company to be for granted. I mean, even back then, I joined when the company I think had raised a seed round around five million dollar valuation. Like I was confident that it was going to be a billion dollar company, um, but I was equally confident that Gumroad was too, right? So, uh, so yeah, I think that sort of I think gave me like a very limited sample size and probably a little bit too much confidence uh, and felt like I had more control over my success maybe than I than I than people actually do. Um, in, in, in practice, I s- sort of have more appreciation for, for randomness and probabilities than I probably did um, as a kid. Uh, but, you know, besides that, I mean, I haven't worked at that many companies. I, I think I'm pretty good at pattern matching around what worked at Pinterest and 
what didn't work at Gumroad in a sense. Like, I think I have a pretty strong mental model uh, that hopefully lends itself to investing well, but we'll see. Uh, but, you know, it's like what people ask me, like, what, you know, how cool, like, what, you know, like, what is, what was it like working at a company like that so early? But the truth is like a lot of the companies look like that pretty early, yeah. you know, building products, uh, shipping, you know, like, I don't know, and someone's, you know, in a room in Palo Alto somewhere, you know, like it, it's not that different. Like Stripe was next door. They were kind of similar to us and Instagram was not far away. And, you know, like it, it's it, a lot of, but they're, but they're not like, there's no like deep seated excitement. I mean, there is excitement, but it's sort of like an internalized excitement. It's not like visible, you know, in the space it's right. Like, it's not like there's fancy anything or other, so. Yep. Yep. I, I, I totally get that. So you left, uh, you left to start Gumroad, right? As you said, talk a little bit more about what Gumroad is, you know, what the original vision for Gumroad was. We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, the transition of operating a venture backed company, right. And trying to go for a billion dollar outcome versus, um, you know, a, a non-venture backed company, right. Which Gumroad has seen both of those cycles But give us, you know, what was the original vision for Gumroad and, and talk a little bit about the state of the company today. Yeah, so I had the idea one Friday night, I designed this pencil icon in Photoshop for a Mac app that I wanted to build. And uh, and I just yeah, I spent like four hours like designing this pencil icon. And I felt like, you know, that four hours was quite valuable to me and maybe it would have been two if I had like a source file that I could copy off of or something that didn't exist. I couldn't find one on the internet, I looked. And so I just felt like, you know, it should be easy for people like me. I have a, had a small audience at the time on Dribbble and stuff like, you know, a bunch of designers following me, et cetera. So I just thought, yeah, I should be able to sell this to them. I should just be able to tweet a link and they can go and buy it. And, you know, I, I felt like this was going to be the future. Like everyone would just build an audience direct and, and, you know, first you have to build the audience direct, but then you start selling directly to them as well. And you can cut out all the middlemen that exist, uh, which I think has started to happen. Uh, and it's kind of become a little bit more buzzy in the last like few months, especially with COVID, uh, but it's the same, you know, kind of the same vision it's always been. Certainly this the scale maybe is a little bit different, but you know, it's just like we want to make it really easy for creators to sell digital products directly to their audience so that they can have more money and have more time to do whatever they want to do, whether that's to create more or to spend time with family or whatever else. Um, it's actually sort of like remarkably similar. Like I, I basically can give the same pitch than I, that I did back then, which is for, for better or worse. Uh, it's it, not much has changed. <laughs> Well, except a lot has changed, right? Like underneath the surface, certainly, you know, you've transitioned from a traditional, you know, VC back company you've, you've written and, and I want to talk about it a little bit more. You penned it, a really good you know, piece on kind of the story of, of, of going after, right. A billion dollar outcome and, and not necessarily getting it, but you've, you know, so you've, you've transitioned from a traditional VC back company to being off the VC train. I, I want you to talk a little bit about the experiences right of running both types of businesses because you know with venture often there are a lot of artificial constraints right you layer into the business that wouldn't necessarily be there you know without raising that level of capital or the associated expectation so we'll, we'll dive deeper into it but just kick off by talking a little bit more about you know the experience of running you know something that's vc back versus not yeah i mean i think ultimately the promise that you make to yourself your employees and your investors when you build a venture back company is that the stock is worth something, you know, or will be worth something typically hundred X or a thousand X or something like that. Right. Because ultimately uh, if you want sort of those returns, like you're not going to see them in via profits or dividends or distributions or anything like that. So I think you invest at a certain price, it's, it's a certain amount of risk. 
uh, but you know, you get rewarded for that when you sell, you know, you, you buy the stock and then you sell the stock, right. And that's sort of like the gap is the money that you make. Uh, and because startups have like a relatively high failure rate, like in general, you know, the successes have to be pretty great, right. To, to make up for that. And, and that's kind of how the model, the model works. Uh, and when you, when you transition off that path, you know, all of a sudden you're like, okay, the way that you get, we make money now is, is via dividends. We don't actually do that yet, but you know, in theory, uh, a sort of a, a boring bootstrap business would, would be, would be, do, would be making money like that. Like the, the owners of the company would be paying themselves, you know, profit share, et cetera, the employees potentially as well. Um, you know, so it's just a very different sort of uh, incentive model that just leads to a very different company, different incentives um, and, 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 and different risk, right? Like you might, if you think you have an opportunity to build a $10 billion company, you might join a company that has a 1% chance of doing that, right? You kind of do the math. Uh, <laughs> but when you're building a profitable, sustainable, growing business, you might, you know, 1% chance of success is not compelling to you because you're getting paid via profits. Like you kind of want, you know, a hundred percent chance of, of success or, or, or something pretty close to that. Right. So it's just different. It's just like the, you kind of have to build from the ground up again, because like the, again, like the investors are lack thereof are different. The, the incentives of the founders are different. Like the, you know, the product that you might want to build might change the team that you might want to build might t- change, right? Like everyone wants certain things. I'm not saying like one, one path is, is right or wrong, but it, you know, there are people who should be doing one path or and not the other, depending on what they want out of, out of their life and their time and how much money they want to make and what risk, you know, sort of factors they're comfortable with, et cetera. Uh, so I just think it, 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 it is very difficult, very few companies. And I think that's why it resonated. That piece resonated so much is very few companies are, can even write about it because very few people ever actually even make that transition to go from a venture backed, you know, raise $10 million from top tier VCs in Silicon Valley to, to then doing this other thing is quite rare. And it's even more rare to, to talk about publicly and, and to sort of put that front and center. Uh, and I think I, yeah, I think that it was worth it. I think people, people enjoyed it. And I think it's made my life a lot simpler too, because I can just be open about the transition. I don't have to pretend like it didn't happen or that I feel guilty about it or something like that. No, I think it was a super genuine piece. And I, I completely agree with that. I think it's actually, you know, to underscore that for, for folks that are listening, I think it's incredibly rare, right? Like the idea, not the idea of the same founder moving on from, you know, having a venture back business and then doing a non-venture back business, et cetera, but transitioning the same asset entity etc right from venture to non-venture is yeah cap table right it's the same yeah, cap table. that's that's exactly right right and and typically it's because of the cap table basis so you mm-hmm. had you know when you were transitioning you had a couple of different options right which are which are the classical i wouldn't say every founder has the same you know three options but you you had these three which is you know shut down start something new and kind of move on um and aqua hire right if there's a buyer uh, mm-hmm. or continued with some, you know, sort of slimmed down uh, version. I want you to talk through that decision a little bit and what compelled you to choose the option to continue because I'll at least say, you know, from a Silicon Valley perspective, um, the the innate kind of pressure, uh, and I'm uh, I'm curious to hear what the guidance you got was or, or the conversations you were having, you know, with whether it was with investors, mentors, whatever it might be. I, I would imagine the prevailing, you know, perspective probably would have been, you know, hey, it was a good ride. Um, you can at least, you know, mark on your resume, you raised a bunch of money from great folks. You had a good experience, you know, go find the next thing and start something new, but you didn't take that path. Right. So talk, talk a little bit more about kind of the thought process 
you know, as you went through that journey and, and ultimately, you know, why you elected to go with the decision, which is, you know, Gumroad is, is still alive and thriving quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you you nailed it. I mean, the definitely the prevailing the prevailing wisdom of Silicon Valley is your time is much more important than any individual company you might be working on. And so, if you're not seeing sort of a return on your time investment, you should fix that. You should either sell the company, you know, if you want, um, make you know, spend a year or two at Square or Medium or whatever other company would would potentially buy it. Uh, you know, be a PM or whatever, and then, you know, leave and, and then start something else. Right. Uh, that's sort of what most folks do and definitely the guidance that I got and, and, uh, yeah, this sort of prevailing sort of prevailing path. I mean, the reason, the reason I took the other path to just keep going was like, one, it just felt dishonest to me. Right. Like I, mm. <laughs> I know a lot of founders who take that path, nothing wrong with taking that path. Everyone has to decide for themselves, but it's pretty obvious that like, it's not someone's first choice. Right. Um, mm. most of the time, like they even might even join a company sort of with the expectation that they're going to leave within a year or two years or three years or whenever they're, you know, they're very aware of when their cliffs are right. Yeah. Uh, typically <laughs> and they're different, they're different triggers on their stock. Um, uh, so, th so there's that, I mean, that's a part of it, but honestly, the, the truth, the, the biggest one is like, I think Gumroad was unique in the fact that, you know, sure. We weren't able to raise a series B, but we were processing, you know, at the time around 2 million a month. We're now at 12, I think 12 or 13 million a month. Uh, we're at 2 million a month, you know, this is 2015, uh, a little under, yeah, it's funny, two, 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 or, two or three or something. And I just couldn't turn it off. And I knew frankly that if we were going to sell, it was going to be turned off eventually. Right. There's this sort of like meme of like, you know, we have, we're super excited to integrate and have all these synergies. And then like a year later, <laughs> you know, you retire the product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mailbox kind of became f famous for this, I think, uh, when they sold the Dropbox. And it's just a, it's just, you know, and I'm not saying that the founders are relying when they wrote the announcements or anything, but, you know, things change, right? Um, acquisitions like often fail too, uh, not just companies. And so I just felt like if I wanted to, I, I felt like I had an obligation to the creators. Uh, this is an obligation I communicated to the investors and the sort of employees of the company since the beginning that, you know, it's a creator first company. This is our focus. And so that's what we're going to do. And the, the other thing I would add is, is it is, it felt like the decision was forced onto me, right? Like I had to make a decision within a certain amount of time. And so I felt like, you know, at least the least I could do is just give myself more time, right? Just extend the runway, make sure that we're profitable. And then I can take, I can still sell, I can still shut down. I can still do those things, but I want the freedom to choose instead of feel like I'm, I'm being compelled to. Uh, and then, yeah, definitely most investors were like, not, not in any malicious way. We're like, you know, we like you, we think you're great. We just think that you picked, you know, the creator economies too early or this or that or whatever, like, you know, go start a new company we'll give you money and, you know, you can have another run at it. And, uh, I just felt like, yeah, you know, like what are like, I'm, you know, maybe it's a lack of courage or something, but you know, I'm I, like, I don't, I don't know if I could have faced the, you know, the amount of vitriol I would get on the internet if I just like said, Hey, this 2 million bucks a month that we're sending to creators, like we're turning off because like, I want to do something else. Right. Um, so yeah, that's kind of some of the decision-making that went into that. What did you have to, to get to sustainability, right? Talk about what you had to do again, you know, it's different being a company that's operating off the balance sheet or, you know, cash flow. Yeah, very right. Different. right? Very different. Um, it's still different. I mean, we're so much larger now. We're, you know, six times the size, but, it's still hard. I mean, I, I think people don't really realize that 
the, 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 if you raise 5 million bucks, the equivalent in, you know, effectively the equivalent in net income you would need to be able to pay people that that's a lot. That's not, you know, that is a lot. So I think people, people actually don't really understand, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the freedom potentially the, the bandwidth that that can give you. But yeah, we went from 20 people plus 23, maybe at our peak to five. Uh, we got rid of our San Francisco office. That was $25,000 a month. We cut virtually every single cost we could. We launched a marketplace component because we knew we could charge a little bit more for that. And it would be basically hundred percent margins uh, to do that. Uh, we launched a premium offering all within, you know, six, six months or so. Um, and that got us profitable, you know, it grew the business enough and we leaned down enough that we sort of net out, you know, 10 K a month or something in, in, in net income, uh, you know, within, within around a year. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, June, June, we were burning $350,000 a month and June, the next year, 2016, we were, we made $10,000 in, in, in net income. Uh, but it's a very different, I mean, even today, you know, it's like, it's very, we're very lean and mean machine and, people are expensive. People are very, very expensive. Uh, and so even, you know, even, you know, right now to give a, people a context on the business, like we're, we're doing 10 million in revenue a year, which might sound like a lot, but you know, after you take out PayPal, you know, PayPal costs and Stripe costs and all these sorts of things, like, you know, we probably do around 300 or so, um, a month in, in sort of gross revenues. And then, you know, people come out of that and people are expensive. So we can have a team of around 10 to 20 people and stay profitable. Um, and you can do the math on, you know, if let's say an engineer costs, you know, let's say to simplify things like $10,000 a month, that means, you know, sort of like $20,000 or so in, in, or maybe even more in, in, in operating revenue per month. And, you know, the GMV increase that we need to see to that is, you know, times, uh, you know, times, let's say to simplify things times 10 again. Right. So, 200,000, 2 million, 2 million. Yeah, something like I don't know what the math, math nets out to be, but it, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's very difficult um, to, to build a, to build a, a, a sort of a, I wouldn't say bootstrap, right. But self-funded from this point on business. Uh, we, we actually will probably consider raising more, more money, but we would do it in a very different way. Um, if we, if we decide to do it. The nuance of um, that you were mentioning earlier that I don't want people to have you know go kind of uncovered is is the nuance of of net income dollars versus raised dollars right because there's a thing called taxes so <laughs> when you yeah totally. when you have profit right to reinvest in the business and so on it, it actually is um you can do the math out right like a 40 percent math out if you're making it you know seven figures in profit or so and that starts to add up very very quickly right in terms of the speed at which you can reinvest in the business so on and so forth um you talked a little bit earlier, right, about, um, you know, the, the market, kind of the creator economy perspective, you know, perspective feedback that maybe the creator economy was early. Um, I th- I'm, I'm a firm believer, right, when, when you kind of have the classical adage of looking at product, market, and team, I, I'm a pretty firm believer in, you know, looking at market first, because um, I, I follow kind of the Warren Buffett quote of, you know, I think it's something like a great entrepreneur you know, goes into a bad market and comes out a bad entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how, you know, especially in a world in which let's say you, you know, you are, you guys are continuing to scale or you, you know, think about raising money or so, how, how do you just think about, you know, the market dynamics and, and, you know, first and foremost, I think really in setting expectations as you're operating the business, um, because I imagine it's, it's not a, it's not a story of Gumroad phase three is kind of going back to a classical right venture backed business. So how do you, how do you yeah. think kind of that next phase or that evolution of the business to scale? 
Totally. I mean, I, the way that I, I think about it is when you when you raise venture and you're trying to go for that outcome, you have to, you're going into unproven territory. So like thing, there are a lot of things where you just don't know how, how large the market is, right? When Uber started Airbnb, Dropbox, Pinterest, like there are a lot of these examples where people are not very good at forecasting how large the market may be. Even the best investors on the planet often miss these things. And and so, you know, when I said, hey, we're going to make it possible for people to sell directly to their audiences, like how many people have audiences in 2011, it was a pretty small number, even 2020, it's still a pretty small number. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a leap of faith that you have to make. And you say, look, we'll find out in five years, right? And hopefully, you know, you kind of have to, you have to kind of assume the puck is, is heading to a certain place and you just have to start and you have to move there with confidence. Yeah. And, and the nice thing is because very few people, because it's not a certain opportunity, you just have less competition, right? Like you, when you, if, if, if you're correct, there's going to be three people fighting for that puck. Um, obviously you can see that now where there's like the creator economy has, is a little bit more proved and there's far more competition for it. Right. Uh, so I think in, in that sense, like, uh, that's, that's, that's one factor. I mean, what I tell, you know, if, 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 and when we do decide to raise, raise money, what I would tell folks is like, I'm making a projection based on the past, right? Like we grew this fast and for better or worse, we think it's roughly going to continue at this pace. And we have eight years plus of data, nine years now of data to show that. And I'm raising roughly based on these expectations. And of course we're going to ship things. We're going to do stuff to increase the market size and go into new markets and X, Y, Z thing. But you know, that's the positive case. There's also a negative case of like, you know, things can happen that shrink the market or change things. Right. So, um, or, you know, uh, Google launches a competitor or, or whatever the tropes kind of might be. Um, but I also think the other, the other thing I would do is to just, you know, say, look, we're not raising that much capital. Like we don't need 20, 30, $40 million right now. We need maybe 2 million, right. Maybe half of that is debt. Like there's different ways to approach a financing, um, if you're, if you're not, a venture is great if you're, if you really think this is like a one in hundred opportunity to one to 10,000 X, right? Because very, you're not going to be able to get a loan from a bank. You're not going to be able to get debt financing. You're not going to be able to operate the business based on your profits. So um, I think if, if, if we do decide to, to raise equity financing, um, you know, it might be a reg CF or a reg A plus or, or, or something like that. Maybe even a 506 C syndicate on AngelList or something in, in sort of similar to how rolling funds work, like, you know, we'll just, we'll just say, look, don't invest in this kind of thing. If this is the outcome you're looking for, right. Just, just be really clear about that. And we can, the nice thing is we can afford to be a little bit more clear about it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I, how I think about it. It's how I think about everything, which is like, you know, open, open being open and transparent seems to be pretty, uh, pretty uh, helpful, you know, and keep everyone aligned on the same, on the same goals. I think so. I mean, I think the incentive alignment has to be super, super clear because like you were saying earlier, which I completely agree with in tech, you know, if you're raising venture, the expectation is you're making money on the Delta of the stock price. Right. And that's it. You're not making money on any sort of dividends, any profit returns, anything like that. Um, so the source of financing, and I think, I think the source of financing for, you know, venture especially is experimentation capital, right. Versus just pure play scale capital. If you're thinking about efficiency, even from a company side, right. Um, if you're at a certain scale, it starts to make sense to either have, you know, some of these kind of alternative funding products, right. Like the pipes, the clear banks, et cetera, of the world, or, you know, or be debt finance, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things, um, 
I've, I've really liked about kind of the way you framed Gumroad and, and even just in general, you've talked about it and you just mentioned it again, kind of this idea of transparency. I think removing friction and democratization are also two, you know, other elements that come to come to mind, right? With Gumroad and kind of your operating style. So Gumroad solves it for creators, um, but there's a new concept called rolling funds and it, it solves it for investors. So <laughs> you have a rolling fund um, and it's a, it's, it's a pretty cool story and a, and a pretty interesting scale of fund also. We'll dive into that, but just to give kind of the listeners the context, talk, talk a little bit more just about the genesis style of how you, how you got started with, you know, even the idea of a rolling fund. And then obviously, you know, you have a live fund now. Yeah. So I, had the or it wasn't my idea, but I, I started doing a bunch of angel investing after one of my angel investments in 2011. I did very few back in the day, but one, one a couple of them did did well. One one has exited, so I had a little bit more capital. So I started investing more significantly in 2019 and 2020. And then after the George Floyd stuff, I tweeted about you know I want to invest in more black founders. One of the nice things about having a large Twitter audience is you can kind of be a, light, a lighthouse for people who are are looking for investment. Uh, at scale. And so I got a bunch of emails. I vetted them, picked four, invested in four companies, uh, compiled a list of three that were looking for more capital, sent them to a bunch of folks, including Naval. And Naval replied saying, you know, have you thought about just raising a fund? I mean, effectively, you know, uh, I'd like to give you some money and then you can just decide what you want to invest in. Uh, you write instead of, instead of, you know, so that's kind of, that is what a venture fund is. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I had a call with him and he explained rolling funds. Um, and you know, I was always kind of, I never considered myself a VC or VC to be, I think it's a job. It's requires a lot of time to fundraise, you know, people quote time between nine months and 18 months to raise a fund. You have to pick a size and, you know, kind of set a goal and, and raise the money. And then you can only start deploying that capital maybe potentially after you close the fund. Uh, and, uh, and so it just felt like a lot, right? The activation energy felt like a lot. And I'm a CEO, I'm busy, I have other stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but the rolling funds kind of simplify that a lot. They basically, you know, allow you to start collecting capital on a quarterly basis with no minimum and no maximum. You can just raise money as you go and you can talk about it. You can, because it falls under this sort of 506C designation of the SEC, you can talk about the fact that you're raising a fund in a way publicly, that in a way that you can't do as long as you verify that everyone in the fund is an accredited investor. And so it basically combined sort of two interests of mine, uh, you know, angel investing and, and, uh, and then openness and transparency, the stuff that I, I, I had applied to Gumroad and, and found quite a lot of success with. And so I felt like, oh, wow, I could just use this Twitter account that I had built really for no purpose. I didn't have like a strong agenda or reason behind growing that audience. I just thought it would be fun. And people would ask me all the time, like, why are you doing this? And I'm, I'm like, I, there's a reason I'm doing this. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> now, now I know. <laughs> um, but it took a year, year and a half of just doing it and growing it. And then it sort of combined all of, it felt, it just felt like the perfect storm. And of, of course, even with COVID, I think that helped, right? Because that, now you can do fundraising via Zoom and that's not weird. And so it just like streamlined the process pretty tremendously uh, for me and everybody else too, I think. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Zoom point a little bit more. I think one of the things that's amazing amongst folks to get a better sense of is just how powerful community and audience can be at scale. And, and you know, I know you have kind of well comfortably over about 100,000 Twitter followers or so. I, I think I read somewhere you had like 1,800 people on your Zoom when you were talking about your rolling fund. And, and just for context, I mean, that's larger than the most, 
you know, many of the most popular events at many, you know, kind of large national conferences. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how you think about, you know, community and, and just how that's added to what you're trying to do with rolling funds. Because there's a concept of kind of, you know, what I see from the outside in, which is there's this element of kind of transparency and building in public. There's this element of having a large enough microphone where people hear it. Um, and then I think there's something native and kind of network effect driven or almost virality driven when you do something like put a product, which is you know effectively what a rolling fund is on top, you know, of kind of that, that match or that fire. Yeah. I mean, I think I have operated in a, you know, with, with my, my, my goal was to create more founders, uh, when I wrote that post, uh, and beyond it was to share information that would help the next generation of founders decide and make decisions on how they want to build build these things, build these companies, and uh, and and to get it out of my system. I mean, that's the other reason I share stuff is just <laughs> stop thinking about it sometimes. Uh, and you know, I was doing that, and people found, found a lot of value in that, and I was already helping founders do all that stuff. And I think Rolling Funds just created a business model on top of it, right? Where all of a sudden, like, I have all of these founders I'm already helping. I can only write so many checks. I was actually thinking of doing potentially secondaries of Gumroad stock just to be able to angel invest because uh, I effectively ran out of capital. Uh, and rolling funds, you know, I, and I have a huge audience, not only founders, but a lot of potential LPs, a lot of founders who would also be LPs, a lot of early employees of companies, a lot of doctors and dentists and people who are just interested in, in whatever I have to say. And so the rolling funds just basically allowed me to almost create like a marketplace on top of myself, right? Where I had all of this deal flow I have all of this access. That's one of the hardest things to get as an investor. And I already had a tremendous amount of that. I actually think if anything, it might've gone down because now I'm an investor, but people might be a little bit more wary of like bringing their concerns to me or something like that. Though I don't, I haven't seen that, but that was one of the, one of the fears that I had getting, getting into this business. And now I can, you know, I can sort of take all of these folks kind of like a supply side of the marketplace and, you know, collect their capital and then blind pool it and then give it to, to founders and people trust me to, to do that because I also have like the experience of having quote unquote invested my time into Pinterest and then, you know, Gumroad, Gumroad did all right. And I have a pretty okay angel, angel uh, portfolio as, as well now. Um, so yeah, I think it did. And, and then, yeah, I mean, to your point around like the events and everything, like, yeah, I mean, there is crazy. I, I think people will still underrate the, 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 the power of social media. I think people look at it like a joke or, they think people are just messing around. Uh, but you know, like that, that zoom webinar, 1800 people signed up. I think 800 people were live tuning in and 6,000 plus have watched it since. And by the way, it's been a month and a half. Like this content is going to be there past my death. Right. So I, I think people, people don't really realize I had a tweet about this the other day, like content appreciates over time, but it is only going to grow in, in value. You know, what I said then is just as interesting now. And you can, people are watching it every day, you know? And so I think it's just like SEO for, you know, people talk about content marketing. This is effectively what that is, right? Like you're just creating lots of resources for people to learn from that don't tie back to your time spent. Uh, and so, and I, I would say the other thing is, you know, people say, why, you know, like, why is it so different? And it's, it's really like saying like, you could, it's just possible now. It just wasn't possible before. If I wanted to talk to you about raising a fund, I couldn't do it. I could only do it once I'd finished raising the fund, which might take nine months, 18 months. And then what's the financial incentive of doing that? Because I'm busy. Like I've already raised the money. I can't actually raise any more capital. 
So there's no financial incentive for me to even talk about the fund anymore. So I move on and I focus on all my content marketing is directed at finding founders and things like that. And so I just think it creates this interesting incentive model where I'm actually like incentivized to teach people how to become fund managers. Whereas in traditional, uh, you know, traditional VC, you almost have like an anti-incentive because you want less competition, right? Um, so it's just like this interesting dynamic that has kind of emerged. But this is what, you know, why Combinator did, right? Like this is what... Naval with Venture Hacks did and Angelist, like they're just building a platform and writing content and trying to help people uh, build transparency and more democratization into the system so that more founders can build better companies. And, uh, and I'm just, you know, contributing on that same, same path. I'm maybe just doing it a little bit more quickly or doing it on Twitter instead of, you know, blog posts or, um, you know, doing Zoom webinars, which are relatively new technology too, then, you know, instead of, what people would do before, which is a live event, right? Um, like, I don't know why I would ever speak at a live event again, but I can get more people to, and I can control the content. And I can get basically any guests that I want. Uh, I actually don't even need, like, it's interesting because like I can launch my own product features for Gumroad to a larger audience than any tech publication can, right? Like I, I do, I, more people see my tweets than read anything that I would ever post a link to. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that the dynamic, and this is true, you know, I mean, you're seeing this in every industry, right? Like musicians can now just do all of their announcement, you know, directly on Instagram or Twitter or, or whatever else, right? Everyone can now go direct. Um, it's the same trend that funnels the creator economy. And I think that's the other reason I think I'm pretty good at it is I, uh, I have a lot of context. <laughs> I've seen tens of thousands of creators use Gumroad to build their audiences and sell content. So I'm, I have like this insane uh, cone of vision into this stuff. Like I see it every day. That's my day job is to see how people do this. And so I, I think in that way, I'm also kind of like very well placed strategically because this is, you know, it's my, my, my this is what I, I have actually been doing just for, for other folks through, through a product that I had built. How do you think about, how do you think about rolling funds and just the place of these, of these vehicles in the broader venture landscape. And let me put some context to that. You know, there's this age old adage of, you know, there's only X number of venture backable companies per year. And, and that, that I wouldn't say it's a trope, but that, that adage really took off, especially when SoftBank entered the ecosystem. I mean, that was very much so a critique to, Hey, you know, you can't just flood the cap, uh, flood the markets with capital or just use capital to determine winners. Um, but the, the flip side of that is I've, I've always kind of thought of, you know, what are, if, if that's the case on one hand, or that's one pervasive perspective, what's the opposite perspective, which is, you know, actually how, what types of vehicles are those that actually help expand, right? The number of venture backable companies or the value in the ecosystem and, and, um, and expand the pie. And, and I actually see, you know, from my perspective, I actually see rolling funds as a mechanism to help, you know, get companies that might not even have gotten off the ground, off the ground. I think that's a lot of what YC did, right, in the early days or for the ecosystem. I'm just curious at your perspective on how you think about rolling funds and just, you know, their place in the landscape in general. Yeah, I mean, people have had the same critique around AngelList. They've had the same critique with Y Combinator back in the day. It's, uh, it's, it's not new, which is people often when things go really well for a long period of time, they think it's the end of a bubble. I mean, this is happening in 2020 where everyone was like, Oh, the tech bubble finally popped. <laughs> it's been going for 10 years straight. I mean, if anyone is like taking a look at the public markets, like uh, they were, they, they, the tech bubble, if, if indeed there is a bubble has yet to pop. Um, maybe this is the beginning of a much larger thing. You can, you never really know. Uh, I think 
people might have thought that, you know, dot com bubble, you know, that popped. I mean, we're much larger than that now. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I believe that we're still in the early, early, early days of the J curve of humanity. And I think we're underrating the, the amount of human and technological progress that will happen in the next 50 years. Quite dramatically, actually, we're underrating it because it's impossible to conceptualize what it even looks like. And um, yeah, I mean, I think in regards to sort of the SoftBank comment, I think there is truth to, you know, maybe there are a certain number of companies that are kind of like at that stage, right? Series B, Series C, Series D that should get to the next stage, should, you know, actually really need $300 million um, to, to, to do that. There are, you know, maybe 50 companies a year, 20 companies, whatever the number is, uh, that, that need that level of, of, of capital. And if you really think about it, one SoftBank deal is the equivalent of my fund times 50 or 100. <laughs> and I'm doing 50 to, I mean, like, that's the crazy thing about the power law is when you realize, like, when you actually look at the, the amount of capital, uh, you know, it, the numbers get very big, uh, you know, so, so like, even, I mean, even like, you know, Kleiner series A and Gumroad was 7 million. Uh, I'm going to write $7 million into 50 to hundred companies. Right. So like it's, it's so, so, so to your point around there's zero sum positive sum game, I think that's really in the early stages. And I think it's around, there's companies that don't even get to the point where SoftBank would take a look because they weren't able to raise the capital. They weren't able to, to get the knowledge, to get to the next stage. Most companies, fail you know and i think a lot of companies fail when maybe they shouldn't have failed um i think yc um is an example of there are probably several companies that you know that succeeded because yc intervened in some capacity right um where they found yc or, or what have you airbnb might, might be an example of that and you know when you look at a lot of these companies it's it's not it's not like oh they solved that problem that problem there's like 10 problems left <laughs> uh <laughs> Right, like 10 companies will build it. I mean, you could look at Zoom and that was kind of considered a solved problem. For example, now Zoom is a $200 billion company. Uh, right, that is insane. I mean, that's more, by the way, that's more venture capital that is deployed per year. All of venture capital, uh, Zoom is worth more than. So I just think, and that was an opportunity considered a zero sum game. So I just think in general, it's just wrong. And, it, and it's also, you know, I'm not operating based on the past. Like, yes, the past is a zero sum game because the past is, doesn't exist anymore. It's what has happened has led to this moment. And this moment is, you know, is fixed. Uh, but there's a whole future out there. And I think the decisions that we make today will, will lead to a, a, a different, different futures. And, you know, we could choose to be in the future that looks quite similar to today, uh, or we can choose to live in one that looks quite different. And that's just based on quantum mechanics and the choices that we make, and we can get into that. But, you know, in general, I just think there are if you can fuel more capital from different sources with different insights and different perspectives, different tastes into different companies and different founders and different founding teams and, you know, expand the definition of what a tech startup might look like. Like, I think uh, there are a lot of companies that, that might, you know, there might be another $200 million, billion dollar company that could have existed that we just don't know about because it didn't get that far. Right. So like, I, 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 com I completely agree. I mean, I, I think the way, the way I think about it is kind of how I was teeing up the question is, you know, there's so many companies, um, there's so many, let me take a step back. I think your point earlier in the conversation, which one, which was one that really resonated was this idea of appreciation of possibilities and probabilities, right. In, in the outcomes of these types of things. And I think when you unpack that and you think about that across, you know, tons and tons of people, the amount of kind of possibilities, probabilities that shake out for just the 
the situational constructs of why certain people can even start companies, right? Phase in life, certain yeah. you know, all bouncing a certain way, et cetera, whatever it might be, right? I think this is the perfect example of how additional capital smartly deployed, you know, with, you know, that's not the incentive of, hey, we're up, you know, $100 million fund, $200 million fund, and we can only look at companies where we're going to put, you know, $5 million to work. Um, it's really about, I think, the amount of like energy unlock and human potential unlock of writing that 25K check, right, or 50K check or so is oftentimes very much so the difference of people saying, should I actually pursue this weekend project more deeply mm-hmm. and potentially even turn this into something, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, that fits perfectly into my my fund strategy, which is to go as early as possible and to try to be the first check as many times as I can, because I believe it is sort of diminishing marginal returns, right? If you already have a million bucks in the bank, I can give you 100K, you're at 1.1. But what I would love to do is to get someone who is actually working at a company, is in my network, someone I would love to start a company and say, hey, would you do it? Would you do it with 100K? Would you do it with 150K? What would, what did, what would it take you to start a company? Because you should really do it. And this is how I started. I mean, my, you know, like this is, it's, People, there's inertia here, right? Um, and, you know, Naval was the one who suggested the rolling fund. Ben was the one who got me into Pinterest. Craig from Collaborative was the person who told me, who kind of signaled to me with a check that I should think about turning government into a, a startup. And so I think, yeah, I, I fully believe that like the, the sort of enterprise value of your check is, is, is almost like becomes larger the second you spend it, if you spend it the right way, right? Because you're kind of creating that leverage. You're transferring your brand value to these people. Um, it is a, it is almost like, it is almost cheating in my mind. <laughs> you you put out a tweet a couple of weeks ago, Sahel, that got that got some heat, and it was it was something along oh, yeah. the lines of, I think you know which one I'm talking about. You it was along the lines of you know everyone should invest in the early stage. Um, look, yeah. Twitter's not the best place for nuance, right? So I, I think there's there's a there's an interesting and nuanced conversation to have about that concept. But just talk a little bit more about your thought process, you know, behind that tweet, right? And what you know what what the intent was, or or you know even how you're thinking about it right now. Yeah. So the tweet I think was quote everyone should angel invest unquote something like that. Right. Um, it was meant to be very pithy and. Uh, and simple, you know, like just literally, I think, yes, I think everyone should angel invest. I literally believe that statement. Uh, I don't believe it today. It, you know, it's physically not possible, but I do think, yeah, I believe in a, in a parallel universe in which everyone should, should angel invest hundred percent. I think part of what I want to do is to get to that point. Um, and the reason, the reason I had that idea, there's, so there's a couple to sort of explain the backstory to that tweet. Um, uh, one, you know, a lot of people ask me, Hey, I want to do a rolling fund. How do I do it? And I say, look, the number one thing you can do if you want to start to become an investor is to have a track record and show people you can actually do it because everything else is just hand waving. Right. And you got to be good at hand waving too, but it certainly helps to have a portfolio. And I am super lucky that I did five investments in 2011 and two of them did really well. And so I can point to those things and show people like, yeah, I can hand wave really well. And I have a company and some operating series, but also look, I do have a little bit of a track record. So that was one thing was I just literally would tell everyone over and over and over again, you should angel invest. If you can afford to, if you can figure it out, you should. Um, so that was one part of it too. I just think, I think people keep telling people that they shouldn't. And it frustrates me because it's like one of the best financial decisions I ever made. If I did more of it, I would be far more affluent. And the reason I didn't is because people kept telling me that angel investing, it's called angel investing because you lose all your money. 
You know, it's like a nice thing to do, but don't expect to make your money back. And that's just patently false. Uh, I think people love to talk about venture returns being terrible, but they're looking at like broad generalized venture returns across all geos, not venture returns of angel investors who are deploying tiny checks into their friends and people they know really, really well, a few a year, if that. Um, so that was another reason I, I, I had the thought. Um, and then the, the, the third reason I had the thought is because I believe, I believe that equity financing is really great. And I wish more people would be able to do it because I think that 5k that you wouldn't be able to get from a bank that you wouldn't be able to get from your, from other folks. Um, you wouldn't be able to get a loan or a gift or anything like that. Um, you know, might be quite game changing for people. And I think if people considered angel investing in the same capacity that they would consider putting money into Vanguard or putting money into Robinhood or putting money into crypto, like they might be surprised at the impact that they would be able to have in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, if you take it incredibly literally, everyone should angel invest. No, like, but, but, you know, when I tweet things like that, I kind of assume that people are not going to think I'm saying that because if you follow me, you know, that I'm not that no, no one believes that I don't think. Right. Like, uh, so I, you know, I just kind of assume that people would kind of take the next step, the next leap of logic and be like, okay, what, what is he actually saying? And you know, the point of my, of, of, of my, of my tweets are they're basically just like reference pointers to, to other things. Right. So this is supposed to get me and other people thinking about, you know, the, the implications of something like this. Right. It would be like me writing a, I like writing sci-fi, like me writing a sci-fi story that says, you know, imagine a world in which, you know, every single person, the day they were born, like you get your income from, you know, and, you know, and, and your universal basic income, but you're only allowed to keep half of it. The other half you have to deploy, um, you know, into your friends. Guess what happens? You have bottoms up, you know, um, income flowing to the smartest people everywhere because everyone's going to want to invest it into their smartest, hardest working friends. Right. I, I can name the top 1% of all the people I know. And, 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 you know, if, if I, if, if, you know, if we allow wealth to transfer sort of in that bottoms up way, it would, it would be interesting. Um, and that's, that, so, the, so a lot of that, but it, I know the reason I, the other reason I tweet stuff like that is because I know it's going to go viral and it's going to get the conversation going, which is what I want anyway. So I can't complain by the, by the feedback, but yeah, it, it is sometimes the low hanging fruit. I'm like, yeah, you could, you know, you do a little bit more work to, to know that I'm not saying something like that, but. It is. I think it's good to put out actually commentary like that candidly, because I think what it does is you're exactly right. Like it, it starts the conversation. And, and I think too often, you know, so many of the, so many of what I've seen kind of on the other side of uh, access or seeing people succeed at a certain scale, right. Being friends with those types of folks, et cetera, which I'm, you know, which you've seen in your, your experience in life as well is you don't quite know actually what, you know, incredible or success or whatever, any of these things look like until you, you know, have actually kind of been up close and personal, and whether that's a founder, an investor, an employee, a friend, what, whatever it might be, right? And I think, I think it's a disservice in many senses to not open other people's eyes to that. And I think the lazy retort is exactly some of the things you were saying, right? Hey, systematic venture returns suck, right? Hey, angel investing, expect to lose all your money, just do it with your quote unquote play money, et cetera, right? So I, I think there's an element there. Um, there's certainly an element there that to be overturned. Um, I want to round out the conversation, Sahil, with, you know, we, we talked about it kind of in spades throughout the course of the conversation, but this idea of building in public and, and transparency. 
And I want to round it out with kind of a two-part you know, question, which is, you know, one for you to talk about what that means to you, why you do it. Um, we've had some threads of that in the conversation, but I'll, I'll ask you that kind of in a clean way. And then the second part, tying it into, you know, one of the things I do a lot lately on the show is I ask founders or investors or so, um, you know, that when you kind of look back on who you are, the experiences you've been through, what do you, what do you ultimately want people in the world to know you for? And I, I, I have a sense that, you know, that, that first element kind of ties into that latter point. So I'll leave those, I'll leave those to kind of two questions with you as we round out the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I want to be known as someone who wants to be really, uh, really, um, correct, I guess, about the way that I think, like, I just want to understand everything, uh, or as much as I possibly can. Um, and I don't have actually, I mean, I, it's funny, but, because my tweets maybe come off as like, I have a lot of really strong opinions, but like, I really don't like, I'm, I'm pretty open to being wrong about mostly everything. And um, I kind of tried to put myself, especially in the last couple of years in a place with the Gumroad failure article and everything like that, where I feel quite comfortable that like I could retreat into the woods and just read books and paint and write. And I would be pretty content and all the stuff that I get to do now with the rolling fund and where Gumroad's been like, that's all gravy. Uh, and, and the cool thing with that is the, is it allows me to be as open and transparent as possible because, you know, that stuff is, I guess people would love the, the word vulnerable. I don't like it because it feels like too self-engrandizing or something, but, you know, because uh, I'm only doing it because I don't actually feel vulnerable doing it anymore. Uh, it's, that stuff is almost like outside myself. Like myself is like the writer, the painter, you know, the husband, the cat owner, <laughs> you know, whatever, the homeowner. Um, the things that a lot of people are actually. And then the, the CEO stuff, the fun stuff, like that's just me playing pretend a few hours a day. Um, and so I'm allowed to, I like allow myself, I think to be really open and, 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 and try things, right? Like I can embrace rolling funds in a way that, you know, very few people I think would have been willing to do. And I won't take full credit for, for the, the hype that it now has, but I think I played a significant role in that because I was willing to put my, my, brand and reputation behind that i think in general I, i'd say that's the other thing that i would like to be known for potentially um is that i'm i'm willing to do that like i'm willing to stand for certain things uh even though they might not be super popular uh and i'm willing to be wrong a lot you know um i think bezos like says this really well it's sort of like the regret minimization framework right like you want to be able to put yourself in a position where you can take the big risks and you don't actually have to bet the company. I think risk is a, is a confusing concept, but like, I don't think anything I do is truly risky. I've built my life in a way that I, every bet that I make, I could lose hundred percent of and, and it would be fine. And that enables me to take the risks that most people choose, choose, choose not to take. Well, Sahil, I, I really appreciate the conversation. It was, it was really interesting and I'm, I'm glad you made the time. I know a lot of our listeners uh, I'm sure, you know, follow you on Twitter and in, in the industry, et cetera. So uh, it will really be fun to release this conversation and, and have folks just hear a little bit more about, you know, the way you think about things in general. So really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.